Welcome to the podcast of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where we feature our worship sermons. Listen again to past sermons from home, when you are traveling, or wherever you are. Listen in if you need a moment of reflection, inspiration, and love. There are some things we do to get ready for guests to arrive. We clean up and we set out food and drinks so they feel welcomed and valued. We may even clean closets or cellars just in case there is a potential need to use them. Our own cellar seems to be kind of a magnet for clutter. I don't know if anyone else out there has that situation. But we recently furnished an entire household for one of our sons just from the stuff we kept down there, just in case. I try my best not to go down at all. A 150-year-old cellar is a rough affair with low ceilings, dirt floors, and a dugout border that prevents flooding around the perimeter. But as much as I avoid this subterranean space, my husband often spends time down there on woodworking projects or cleaning up which, when you look closely, seems to be like rearranging the junk a little bit and maybe getting out of some other things that I had asked him to do. I sometimes hear music and the whir of a saw coming from the basement. But once, years ago now, the basement itself seemed to sing. When I asked my husband about the noise, a slow realization came over his face and he hurried down. At the time we had a gecko. The gecko's name was Tina. And Tina required feeding with live crickets a few times a week, a job I never did, but my boys really enjoyed. As a typical frugal Scot, my husband found a really good deal and grabbed it. Never mind that 500 crickets would take Tina over a year to consume. It was a good deal. It was saving money. Until the cat somehow opened the lid of the styrofoam cooler and all 500 crickets escaped into our ancient cellar and began to sing as he chased them futilely. Just a little gecko advice there about the cricket sales. Don't be fooled. So friends, we're in the middle of the third week of Advent, and we hear the biblical call, it often comes from the prophets, to prepare the way. We hear the call to repent, to turn around, to change our ways, to clean up our lives and our world, and eventually we'll even get to singing. Because believe it or not, repentance or turning eventually leads to real freedom and joy. Back in the early days of my renewed faith during college, there was this little booklet that went around in the evangelical circles in which I wandered. I should make a note here that the Christian faith I was exposed to in the early 90s in central Indiana was much more about Jesus and social justice and much less about partisan politics. Evangelical Christianity nurtured me in the Bible encouraged me in a lifelong prayer practice and set me on a path that led to ministry even if I no longer count myself in that camp. The little booklet was called My Heart, Christ's Home. 
And it encouraged the reader to look at every aspect of the house of your soul and imagine Jesus there in the kitchen, the living room, even the workspace in the old cellar. The premise was that allowing God's spirit to take over different aspects of our lives enables us to bless others more authentically and to live in the now with the abundant life that Jesus promises. It takes also, though, a turning toward God and a repentance of sin so that God's spirit may fill us and help us to live. Advent is a good time to ask if God has access to our hearts, to our homes, to our hopes and dreams. Do friends and family have access? Maybe our lives have become so cluttered that it's hard for us even to get access to our own hearts. We're pulled in so many directions, it's like chasing singing crickets. Maybe in the past few weeks, months, years, we felt depleted, exhausted, overwhelmed, overscheduled, isolated, disappointed, dissatisfied, out of steam and out of focus. Maybe we can connect with the ones who responded to John the Baptist's call to come out into the wilderness and to be baptized because we know that we are spiritually hungry and thirsty, and that there are times that we are willing to do whatever it takes to get right with God and with one another. So we slither on down to the river to meet our baptism. And oh, what a strange prophet we find there. This man called John in camel's hair who eats locusts, which are relatives to the crickets, by the way, and who has little interest in being liked or appreciated or admired. This John who looks around at desperate people and calls it like it is. Whether he was talking to the religious leaders of the day or the ordinary folk in the crowd matters little because if we are honest, we recognize the truth. John addresses the crowd with this intro. After they've come to be baptized, he says, You brood of snakes. I mean, if that is an invitational, I don't know what is. It's in this time before John Calvin even, and, you know, still we have this. You brood of snakes. And when he says that, I get the sense that he's chiding them, that he's chiding them in this almost like a friendly, familiar sort of way. At least that's what I want to see. And here's why. They don't hang their heads in shame. They don't seem to be offended. They don't prostrate themselves in fear and trembling. They are not disturbed or brought low by his teaching. They relish it. They stay there. They love John. They came to be baptized by him. They know who they are. They know the truth about themselves, and they come to hear the good news of abundant life. They only ask him one question. What are we supposed to do? And John answers, He tells them in the individual circumstances of their individual lives what they should do ethically. To the crowd, the whole crowd, he says, if you have two coats, give one away. The same with your food. To the tax men who come, he says, no more extortion. Collect only what is required by law. To the soldiers, he says, no harassment, no blackmail, and be content with your rations. It's a strange and special gift during Advent when we hear the voices of the prophets. 
prophets who say what no one wants to hear, prophets who, who believe in God when no one else can see God at work, prophets that feel God, that feel God's compassion for us, God's anger with us, God's joy in us, who dream God's dreams and utter wake-up calls and hope God's hope and announce this new future, who will God's will and live it against all odds even if they end up in jail. Prophets who sing God's song and sometimes interrupt the program with a change of tune. The old prophet Zephaniah, who we read earlier today, I shouldn't say he was old, I don't know how old he was, but he was in the Old Testament is what I mean. And he, he talked about ancient Jerusalem and how it was filled with idolatry and corruption and injustice. He talked about earlier in that book how all the institutions of the society were in need of reform, but that he was putting hope in this faithful remnant. And is that remnant he addresses when he says to them, rejoice. I'm telling you, rejoice. The Lord is in your midst, he said. You shall fear disaster no more. Do not fear. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord will rejoice over you with gladness, renew you in love, exalt over you with loud singing as on a day of festival, save the lame, gather the outcast, and bring you home. Like John the Baptist who would come centuries later, the home Zephaniah envisions is not a home just for some, but a home for all. The weak and the outcast, those at the center and those on the margins. It's not only about my heart, Christ's home. It's about this world, Christ's home. The fruit of the kingdom has everything to do with how one handled riches, shared one's goods, executed public service, learned contentment, and created home for all. This was a message of joy, especially for those who had lost hope who'd been hurt by iniquities and injustices perpetrated by the empire and the religious authorities aligned with it. The world, as they knew it, was about to turn. Jesuit priest Gregory Boyle is the founder of Homeboy Industries. It's a gang intervention program in Los Angeles. He writes how six years into his 30-year ministry, he realized that saving lives is for the Coast Guard, that him wanting a gang member to have a different life would never be the same as that gang member wanting to have one. He discovered, he said, that you do not need to go to the margins to rescue anyone. But if we go there, everyone finds rescue. And he tells the story of a 19-year-old man named Louie, a gang member making money by selling crack cocaine and addicted himself. And after many attempts to get her, him into rehab, Father Boyle got him there. He was only there a month, and his brother committed suicide. And Father Boyd called this man named Louis and told him what had happened. Louis was crestfallen. He was crying. And Father Boyd said, I'll pick you up for the funeral, but I'm driving you right back. Louis said, I want to come back. I like how recovery feels. So when Father Boyle arrived at the rehab center, Louis greeted him and told him about the dream he'd had the night before. Father Boyd recalls these words. In the dream, the two of us are in a darkened room, Louis said. No lights whatsoever, no exit signs, no light under the door, total dark. And then silently, I pull a flashlight, Father Boyle, in the dream, 
and I aim steadily on the light switch across the room, and Louis tells me that he knows that only he can turn the light switch on. He expresses his gratitude that I happen to have a flashlight, and then, with great trepidation, Louis moves slowly toward the light switch, following closely the guiding beam of light. He takes a deep breath, flips the switch, and the room is flooded with light in this dream. And as he tells Father Boy this, he is sobbing, and he says, And the light? The light is better than the darkness, as though he had not known that that's what recovery would feel like. Father Boyle says we can't turn the light switch on for anyone, but we all own flashlights. And with any luck, on any given day, we know where to aim them for each other. We do not rescue anyone at the margins, but go figure, if we stand at the margins, we will all be rescued. No mistake about it. Neither you, nor I, nor our nation can produce fruit in keeping with repentance unless we tell the truth about ourselves, no matter how hard it is to see it. Only then can we make amends and change and embrace shalom. And if we need help in knowing what it means to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, we can ask our friends who follow the 12-step programs because they know what it is. They know what it means to admit powerlessness. They know what it is to submit to a higher power, to make a fearless inventory, to sincerely make amends, and they hold flashlights for each other. If we stand at the margins, we are all rescued. Our heritage and genealogy are not proof of our Christianity. You can say I was baptized in the church, my parents are married here, I ran the Sunday school, I went to seminary, I became a pastor. No matter how strong your Christian credentials are, we all find ourselves at the same river offering up our precious illusion of self-sufficiency and kneeling once again to beg for God's forgiveness. Like the Jesuits who each day open their closet to put on the garments of their calling, we must practice daily conversion to Christ, daily repentance, and commitment to whatever we can reasonably do to make things right in our institutions, in our nation, in our relationships, and in our individual lives. It's time to clean up the clutter so we are ready for truth, for change, and for personal and global healing, a home for all. Because if we all stand at the margins, we will be rescued. For God will rejoice over you with gladness. God will renew you in God's love. And God will exalt over you with loud singing. Together, let us lift our voices to God who redeems us. Amen. We thank you for listening to a worship episode from Fairmount Presbyterian Church. Revisit this podcast site weekly for new worship episodes. Have a beautiful and blessed day.